1: Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today we're gonna talk tech with a former executive from one of the most prominent companies in the MarTech industry. Joining us is Jennifer Byrne, who is a technology advocate working towards the future where everyone has the tools to thrive in the digital world. A veteran of the technology industry where she created digital transformation strategies for some of the biggest companies and governments in the world, including her time spent as the CTO of Microsoft US. And today, Jennifer and I are going to discuss navigating a non-traditional career in technology. All right, here is my conversation with the former CTO of Microsoft US, Jennifer Byrne. Jennifer, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. I am thrilled to have you as our guest. I have to say that when your bio came through our online application forum, I had to blink twice and said, the former CTO of Microsoft wants to be a guest on our show. It's really an honor and a privilege. I'm excited to chat with you and you've got some exciting things that you're working on. Let's start off. I want to talk to you a little bit about your former role. You have a distinguished career, including running the technology arm at Microsoft. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: I have about, well, we're not going to count the exact number of years, a couple decades in tech. started out in the cybersecurity space in the late 90s, working for government clients, and made my way around the corporate environment. So moved from engineering into sales, business development, some corporate strategy jobs, and ended up at Microsoft to also work in a cybersecurity domain and then moved into CTO. Role. A lot of actually what I talk about is the way you navigate a non-traditional career, because I had one, and ended up working in the U.S. division of Microsoft, working with customers who were trying to figure out how they could make the most of the technology that was in front of them.
1: So, Jennifer, you mentioned that you had a what you call a non-traditional career. A couple of facets to break down there. Uh, first and foremost, why do you consider your career path to be non-traditional?
2: Well, probably a couple of reasons, but the biggest one is because it didn't start out in tech. I actually started out in the nonprofit world, social services specifically. And in my early years, thought that that was what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I have a degree in psychology, and I felt like that was what I needed to do. And for some very practical reasons, I made the move into technology, and I learned to love different aspects of that. I learned a lot of different competencies in those roles. So I you know, started out in engineering in a very traditional technology role and decided that while that was great, that there were other fun things to do in that domain. And so I moved into sales and in a lot of different competencies. And what I really loved was the domain, but what kept me interested was the opportunity to sort of challenge myself and learn different skills. So that was kind of how I, I navigated across what would be for other people, probably kind of an unlikely path.
1: So there's a little bit to unpack that someone that was a bachelor of psychology from the University of Santa Cruz ends up in a very technical role at a prominent technology company. Talk to me about some of the things that you learned along the way from sales and from your nonprofit experience that helped you become a better technologist.
2: Well, my timing in my career was such that When I started in technology, there wasn't a lot there. There were very few universities at the time that offered computer science degrees. There wasn't a lot of tech talent. There was a huge need because in the late 90s and early 2000s, it's when everything was really, truly becoming digitized. It was a bit of an inflection point in the market. So I had a lot of opportunity in front of me that I might not have had in other eras because there just was so much demand. So I was able to leverage a lot of other skills that helped me shore up the fact that I didn't have a four-year degree in computer science. And specifically what I mean is that in the nonprofit world and across some of the other jobs that I had, I had learned leadership skills. I learned good communication skills. I had good business skills. And it turns out that to be good in technology, you not only have to have those technical skills, but you have to be able to know how to apply them to actual problems.
1: The interesting thing to me is that prior to Microsoft, your roles were in technology companies, but they were sales driven. Talk to me about how you developed your understanding of technology. I think of technologists most of the time, you know, they start off as engineers And they have sort of deep operational experience in technology. And you sort of came at this from a different perspective. How did you learn the technical chops or how were you able to bypass the need for the operational, the coding experience to be able to lead a technology organization?
2: I mean, I did have some training. So when I made the move from the nonprofit world into technology, I went back to school for a year and night school and learn technical skills. Halfway through that year, I had an instructor who was also a network engineer in a tech company. And he said, hey, you seem like you could probably jump in right now. Are you interested in a part-time job as a network admin? And at the time, I was very interested in that. I had two kids and was making a career major change. And so any job was good. And I took it. And then I ended up in some tech roles. And to the point of the late 90s, where there was just a lot of demand, I, by virtue of that demand, was allowed a lot of opportunities that might have otherwise been reserved for more senior people just because they needed bodies at the time. So I was, before I knew it, installing technologies in large government clients and doing some high-profile projects. So I did actually have a couple of years of great tech experience, but what I also had was a lot of business skills. So the sales move was me saying, you know what? Although I think I could probably continue in this trajectory of getting really deep and really good in a very traditional tech job as an engineer or an architect, what's more fascinating to me is not the technology itself, it's how it's applied to particular problems. And to do that, you have to have a different kind of role.
1: Yeah. And I think that the career path and understanding what roles you've had, it makes sense that you were able to be an executive. Right, you're learning all the leadership skills, and a lot of what you're doing learning scales can be applied to managing teams and sort of building and aligning incentives. You're learning your technical chops. You mentioned night school, and then you had some other jobs that were technical. You've always worked in a technical field. And then you go into Microsoft, which to me, you were there, it looks like from 2014 to 2020. So for a little over six years, talk to me about what Microsoft was like when you got there and how did you end up entering the organization?
2: I started at Microsoft as the chief security officer for their worldwide public sector group. And I got there because I had a background in cybersecurity, but not just any background in cybersecurity. I had a really broad set of skills in that domain in that I understood the technical challenges. And I also understood the business challenges that companies have when they're trying to solve their own security problems. And that's what Microsoft was looking for somebody who could be an outward-facing evangelist for Microsoft and convincing customers that it was a secure platform and it was a trustworthy platform that they could use to store their data in the cloud. So that's how I got there. But what you quickly realize in a lot of these tech roles, as soon as you're outside of the team that's actually touching the technology every day, technology roles are about making sure you understand how to apply technology to problems in the world. How does technology allow a hospital to provide better access to more affordable health care? How does technology help improve student outcomes in an academic institution? How does technology, you know, lower the operational costs for a manufacturing company? If you can't talk about both of those sides of the problem, then you're really, you know, sort of not delivering to the market what it's actually asking for. It's not just the technology show me how to use it.
1: Yeah. And I think that it makes sense that your approach to operating in a technology role is thinking about the application and usage of the technology. And a lot of that comes from the business acumen that you've been able to cultivate from some of the other roles, sales, nonprofit, the security sector. Time for a one minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost effective. Request a demo at Mutinex.co. That's M U T I N E X.co. Talk to me a little bit about what the difference is being you were the chief security officer, which obviously is an executive role, a very high profile role at a large company. But when you put the CEO title next to your name, it feels a little different. It feels like you're one of the people sitting at the big round table in the executive suite. Is there a difference between being a CTO, chief security officer? What's it like being a true C-level executive at a company the size of Microsoft?
2: Well, Microsoft has 140,000 employees, so you can be pretty high up in the food chain and still have a lot of people above you. So I'll say that. I think of that title, I understand and understood, obviously, the scope of the job and how much influence I could have both internally in the company and externally. But I was also very aware that a CTO in a company of 5,000 people is maybe even a lonely position because it's just you. A CTO in a company like Microsoft still means you have hundreds of people who were at your level around the world out of 140,000 people who you are working with, and then everybody goes forward together. And maybe this is true for every leadership position, even at the highest levels of a company, you still are working pretty collaboratively with people around you. Now, Having said that, what is it like to be the CTO of a big U.S. division? It's you have to start to really think in a much more futuristic and visionary way because you have a responsibility for setting a vision or a strategy that a lot of other people will follow. And people are relying on you to make the right decisions.
1: And you were at Microsoft at an interesting time. Were you there through the transition from Steve Ballmer to... Yeah,
2: Satya Nadella. And I joined about a year after Satya assumed the CEO position.
1: Right. So there's a transition and there's really kind of been a public-facing rebound, not that the company was doing poorly under Steve Ballmer, but... It seems like it has found more of an identity focusing on not just being the core Microsoft operating system and the office suite, but the cloud, the security, LinkedIn, Xbox, right? It's rebounded to kind of reinvent itself. Talk to me about the time that you were at Microsoft and what were some of the contributions that you felt you had in the organization?
2: Well, I joined at that time when Microsoft's sole mission was to rebuild trust with the markets that it served. And it needed to do that in an era where it was also trying to make sure that its customers were going to adopt public cloud. So it was actually quite a hefty challenge in that era of the company. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to join it, because I came from a security perspective. And for decades, Windows was the favorite thing to hate or hack, if you will, if you were a security person, because that's where you know there were all the bugs and it was a big target for the cybercrime industry. And yet Microsoft was very openly trying to make that transition. And so as I joined as chief security officer, my job was to spend time with governments around the world trying to convince them that Microsoft's public cloud was a trustworthy place for them to place their data. And by the way, that was in the era of Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, and it was a big conversation whether or not the US government would be able to demand access to data within the Microsoft cloud. And what would Microsoft do were that to happen? So, I did join in that era when rebuilding trust was a big topic. My first job was to look at it through the lens of sort of policy and regulation and that international conversation that was going on. However, as I moved into a CTO role, which is much broader, the trust conversation still showed up, but just in a different way, because then it was about establishing trust with customers who weren't as concerned about my data in public cloud, but they were concerned that Microsoft had the ability to truly understand what they were trying to do. For example, you were trying to transform your supply chain from paper and clipboards and conveyor belts to something that's fully automated and hopefully leveraging great technology, that's a live or die kind of decision that companies make, which is a huge investment in technology. Does Microsoft have the ability to listen well enough and sort of the talent broadly enough to be able to partner with companies through those big transitions, which ultimately is also a trust conversation.
1: Interesting. So after moving on from Microsoft, talk to me about what you're doing today and what is life like leaving the C-suite?
2: Well, it's a big transition and it's been super fun in a lot of ways. I feel like it's
1: got to be a little less stressful. seems like a stressful role.
2: You get rid of one kind of stress and you take on another kind of stress. You get rid of the stress of just having a lot of demands and shifting demands and that always on mentality being in an executive position at a big company. And what you take on is a more existential stress around what do I do? Mm-hmm. And am I doing something that matters? So there's a lot of, you know, sort of training that you have when you've been in corporate life for a long time around how you define your own value in the context of a day, which is usually if you have a job, I went to work. And I worked really hard. You know, what did you do? I don't know, but I worked really hard and I did it all day long. And so there, and when you branch out on your own, you have to sort of redefine the value of your day a little bit differently. But the last year at Microsoft, I got increasingly involved in some projects that were about creating digital empowerment at a community level. And the reason why I was doing that is because one of the things that all big tech companies are focused on, frankly, all big companies are focused on right now is digital skills, because that's usually the downward pressure and adoption of technology. It isn't that the technology doesn't exist. There's AI everywhere for kind of every problem you have. It's that you don't have enough people who know how to use it. So this skills question kept coming up. And it's not just a question that we see inside of a company or a government entity It's a question in the community levels and it starts as early as kindergarten. So if you want broader adoption of technology, you gotta go talk to a lot of different people. And then what you find when you have those conversations is that there is such a thing as a digital divide. Just like there's a socioeconomic divide, there is a bit of a technology have and have not. So I had this personal realization that for 20 odd years, I had gotten very, very good It evangelizing all the wonderful things that technology could do. All of the big intractable problems that were never solvable until technology came along. And what I had not done was think about the unintended consequences of broad technology adoption, which is that if you don't have technical skills, you might not be qualified for even the job you have right now. So that felt like a problem worth spending time on.
1: I appreciate that after leaving such a highly visible desired position that the way that you're refocusing your career is by thinking about something that's very altruistic. And you mentioned sort of bringing technology to groups or communities that don't necessarily focus on digital and technology skills. One of the things that I want to point out and discuss, hopefully appropriately, there are very few women that work as executives in the technology industry. And you've gone through a non-traditional path to not only be an executive in technology, but I think making it even more rare to be a female executive in technology, talk to me about what impact gender has played, you know, positively or negatively throughout your career, and how did it help shape you as a technologist?
2: I think that whenever you are in a minority class, whatever that is, how are you frame that, you learn resilience and you also learn to listen to your own voice because you just might not have a lot of people who are like you around you at any given time. So you, don't, you just don't have that opportunity. And those are tough lessons. They were harder in the beginning of my career because times really have changed. And it was very different in the late 90s than it is right now. So I would say that I certainly had to persevere through a handful of glass ceiling moments. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them, Because I don't want to define myself or my career in negative terms, but for sure did I have moments when I felt very alone because in fact, I was the only woman in the room or I felt like there was a little bit of bias. And by the way, bias, when it shows up in a workplace, we hear about the very obvious scenarios or instances of it because they make the news or something that we can talk about. My view is that bias is almost always very covert. It's not what people say to you when you're in the room. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. So what that means is you're never really sure. Did I get passed over for a promotion because I'm a woman or because I, you know, I'm a mom and I have two kids at home and there's a view of that or not? Because I'm never going to know. So you do have to learn how to judge yourself with your own yardstick. And that does make you strong. I would also say that there were probably opportunities or instances in my career where being a woman absolutely played in my favor. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from a mentor, it was that McAfee had been acquired by Intel. I was at a senior director level and I was trying to figure out like, how do I get, what's the next level? It's a VP, how do I get there? And he said, you know what? You're trying to compete in a pond full of fish that look just like you because you're in cybersecurity. If you want to go be different, go work in a company where there aren't a lot of cybersecurity people. And that was one of the reasons why Microsoft was so interesting to me, because at the time they didn't have that. So it's a story about leveraging what makes you unique. And in some respects, being a woman did make me unique in certain roles. And I did get a second look or a second chance, or there was at least a little curiosity about how did she get here? And if you have that moment and you can leverage that moment really well, it can actually work out well for you in your career. So...
1: I recorded uh, Women in Martech Week, and it's probably been a year or so now since we did that, where we had a a handful of female Martech executives come on the show and talk specifically about gender. And one of the things that I appreciate the most talking to women like you, women like the people that were our guests in the Women in Martech Week, was the focus on being unique, the confidence to be able to be yourself. And I, I think it's noteworthy that. There are not a lot of female marketing and technology executives, so I look at people like you, Jennifer, as very important role models for our industry, not just for the women who are trying to become technologists and become executives, but also for the men to think about how you can take advantage of your strengths and that the things that make you different make you unique. I think that's great perspective. I appreciate you talking to us a little bit about your career, and we're going to bring you back tomorrow to talk about some of the things that you're working on after your experience as the CTO of Microsoft. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jennifer Byrne, former CTO of Microsoft US. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Jennifer and I are going to discuss the future of work. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Jennifer, you can click on the link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact her on Twitter. Her handle is jenniferaburn one That's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-A-B-Y-R-N-E-1. Or you could visit her website, which is J E N N I F E R B Y R N E T A L K S J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-B-Y-R-N-E-T-A-L-K-S.org.